Hi, this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. This is Trek Tuesday with a special edition of Sci-Fi Talk Weekly, a special Star Trek edition, and I look around the internet for the latest Trek news. Screen Rant has news on Starfleet Academy. Production is set to begin 2024. It's about a group of cadets looking to become Starfleet officers. The themes, hope and optimism, are central. Alex Kurtzman, who is the executive producer, spoke at New York Comic Con. He says the series will be really funny. And he gives us some more details. Under the watchful and demanding eyes of their instructors, they will discover what it takes to become Starfleet officers as they navigate blossoming relationships, explosive rivalries, first loves, and a new enemy that threatens both the Academy and the Federation itself. There's more of Sci-Fi Talk Weekly, a special Star Trek edition on Trek Tuesday in a moment. According to Screen Rant, Spock did meet an alternate version of himself in the animated series. I believe it's called The Infinite Vulcan. Maybe some of you older Trekkers like me remember it. And let's do a little recap for those who haven't seen it. In Star Trek The Animated Series Season 1, Episode 7, the Enterprise travels to Phylos. They are there to evaluate possible entry into United Federation of Planets. While they're exploring Phylos, they encounter a giant clone of Dr. Stavos Caniculus, known as Caniculus V. He was a geneticist at the time of Earth's eugenic wars. Caniculus uses Spock DNA to create a giant, literally 25-foot-tall, clone, and he refers to him as Spock Number 2. And the reason he was created is to bring peace to the entire galaxy. After convincing Caniculus from Kirk and Spock that the plan is not necessary, Spock too remains on Phylos to help Caniculus restore the local civilization. Spock's clone does not get a reference again until nearly 50 years later, and that's from the gang in Star Trek Lower Deck Season 2, the episode Kason His Eyes Open. Speaking of Lower Decks, according to Collider Mike Mahan, who is the creator of the series, found inspiration for the Orion homeworld and Kenneth Brown has much ado about nothing. According to TrekCore.com, he talked about the process of depicting the Orion homeworld, although they were the first of the alien races to appear in Star Trek the original series, and in the cage if you want to be technical. Their planet was never seen until now. I mean, we saw glimpses of it, and it was just one set in the Menagerie, but that's about it. Of course, there's an Orion on Lower Decks, Devon Attendee, voiced by Noel Wells, and says, Mayhan, we needed to figure out how to visit Orion that would tell us about Tendi. My wife's favorite movie is Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing. So we made Tendi's family house, that castle from Florence, and built things out from there. There's more at Collider. Looper has an article on prequels causing plot holes for the original series. Remember when the when the series when the Star Trek when Star Trek Discovery premiered in 2017, it was a story of Michael Burnham played by Sinequa Martin Green and the USS Discovery, and right there there was a plot hole. First of all, they had an experimental starship with advanced technology, 
never even mentioned a hundred years later in Star Trek. So obvious was this plot hole in the end of season two, the writers had to address by sending the ship a thousand years into the future, having Starfleet classify the technology for fear of galactic destruction. Yeah, it's a little far-fetched, but at least they uh, decided to close the loop on that one. In addition, the highly secret Starfleet Intelligence Agency, known affectionately as Section 31, established being unknown to almost everyone. Both before and after the time of discovery, they seemed to have common knowledge operating out in the open for everyone to see. Once again, producers realized that perhaps they created too big of a plot hole to ignore, and following the second season, they tried to explain it away in a throwaway scene. Looper has a story on how fast is warp speed. Basic warp speed, also referred to as warp 1, is exactly the speed of light. That is approximately 300,000 kilometers per second. Anything below this speed is described on board a Starfleet vessel as fractional. The scale isn't linear, which makes things trickier to calculate at any speed other than flat warp 1. The best scale to use is from the next generation, which there was actually pointed out as an actual mathematical formula to calculate warp speeds. And by that scale, a warp factor of 0.5 is only one-tenth the speed of light, while warp 5 is 213.7 times faster than light. As we've seen in many Star Treks, the laws of space-time start to break down entirely once warp 10 is reached. When you get to warp 10, it's defined as infinite speed, means anything traveling it would occupy all points in space at the same time. Interesting. Astrophysicist Aaron McDonald explained in a Star Trek YouTube channel, just because nothing can travel faster than the speed of light on the surface of space-time, nothing says space-time itself can't go faster than the speed of light. How does a warp engine use that loophole in the laws of physics to accomplish FTL travel? By generating a field that warps the space-time around the starship, said McDonald. The idea was warp drive is what you build a bubble of space-time around your ship and then propels you faster than the speed of light. Those bubbles are called warp fields. More at Looper. Getting back to Star Trek Lower Decks, Fanside reports that Mike Mahan is writing Season 5 of Star Trek's Lower Decks in case of a possible cancellation. He's encouraging fans to watch the show once it airs to stave off that cancellation. McMahon is seemingly telling fans that his show might not be safe. But there's no guarantee that this, this is the last season 4 that we're watching right now. But... You know, with Paramount Plus's cancellations, you never know. McMahon told the fans at New York Comic Con via TrekMovie.com that he intends to make the fifth season awesome, saying, I am writing the finale of season five right now, and next year is going to be awesome. Game Brand has a story on Patrick Stewart's latest memoir, Making It So. According to his book, Gene Roddenberry wanted Deanna Troy to have three breasts, even four. In making it so, Stewart officially confirmed that Star Trek rumor about Roddenberry. A lot of people enjoy the naked now, but to me it smacked of desperation, as if we have been on the air for years 
and the writers had already emptied the cupboard of good ideas. But Gene, as it was well known, was a fan of cheesecake. He had Marina wear a mini dress and go-go boots in the pilot as if it was still the 1960s. And had it never happened, he contemplated giving Deanna Troy three or even four breasts. Interesting. The Return of Tasha Yar. Screen Rant has a story on Yar coming back in Star Trek Defiant Annual. Tasha Yar will meet her half-Romulan daughter, Sela, exploring the tragic elements of their lives. Now, of course, Sela came to be because of a plot twist in The Next Generation, where essentially she went on Enterprise C, went through time, and instead of Romulans killing her, the Romulan commander grew fond of her and ended up taking her as his wife, and then eventually they gave birth to a daughter. Sigla was recently featured in the Day of Blood crossover event, and apparently it, there is more to come. Fans want to know what happened to Sigla, and now she's going to meet her mom. At this year's New York Comic Con, Star Trek Defiant writer Christopher Cantwell described the January annual as a Tasha Yar and Sigla story that would involve the two meeting, thanks to time travel. Pointing out that this had never happened on screen, Cantwell stated the book would explore the tragic and painful elements of both their lives. The Defiant Annual will show Tasha's Yar in the Romulan camp, as well as her attempts to escape. Cantwell reminded fans that Sela told Picard the story of Tasha's escape and how she was killed in the process, but hinted that there was more to the story. Ah, Planet Hell gets a tribute on Star Trek Lower Decks in the episode Caves. S several things came out in the episode I thought were funny. Rutherford admitting to a cave baby and Mariner bonding with the Delta Shift, the dreaded Delta Shift. Basically, their mission was to examine cavernous moss in the caves beneath the planet of Grotinus before they got trapped and by no means they couldn't contact the Cerritos. They couldn't contact the Cerritos. As they try to find a way out, Boimer and Beckett and Rutherford individually reminisce about their previous cave missions, which contained those revelations and some more. More at Screen Rant. Movie Web has the best Starfleet captains. Here are just a few. Captain Gabriel Lorca, an interesting choice being that the original Lorca was probably dead and replaced by the Mirror Universe Lorca. And he had a plan, all right. On the plus side, he did save Michael Burnham's career. Captain William T. Riker. Unfortunately, we didn't get to see a lot of Riker's earlier career commanding the Titan. We just know at the end of the Last Generation movie that he took command of the Titan. We do see him briefly in Lower Decks having a good time doing it, and again in Star Trek Picard, but we don't know much more than that. There could be some adventures there, maybe casting a younger Riker would not be a bad idea. Captain Saru. He took over on the Discovery, and I think he did a great job. He was a more thoughtful commander in my opinion, and I liked his style. Interesting. And then Captain Michael Burnham. This is the only captain in Starfleet that was actually going to be court-martialed or was court-martialed. But thanks, to, as I mentioned earlier, to Captain Lorca, she got a second chance and eventually, a thousand years in the future, 
Commanded Discovery. The number one choice in this article surprised me, and you can see it at movieweb.com. More Star Trek news on a special Sci-Fi Talk Weekly here on Trek Tuesday. Game Rant talks about Discovery's spore drive. Lorica described it as a a microscopic web that spans the entire cosmos, an intergalactic ecosystem, an infinite number of roads leading everywhere. More at Game Rant. Looper looks at the colors of the uniforms and their meaning, which they denote which job class each crew member belongs to. Those classes were divided by Gene Roddenberry originally, red was engineering and security, Gold, of course, was command, and blue was either science or medical. And those costumes were designed by the great William Weir Tice. And they were the, the main inspiration was the classifications used by the U.S. military on heavy aircraft carriers. But these color codes that often denote each character's job on the ship are the ones that are used from the original Star Trek series to explain who is who and what they do. They've been through some changes, and like in Next Generation, red was command and security, and gold was and and gold was science. And blue still stayed with medical. I believe I'm correct on that. <laughs> Screen Rant has a story on why Savick was switched for Star Trek VI. Gene Roddenberry didn't like the idea of turning Lieutenant Savick into a traitor in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and he was right. Savick was a character that fans liked, and it would not have been fitting for her to commit treason. He was reportedly furious of the idea of Savick committing treason against the Federation, especially betraying her mentor, Captain Spock. Lucky for us, he was correct. So they created Lieutenant Valeris to replace Savick to unfold properly without compromising Savick's character. So what it also tells me is that Spock mentored quite a few young Vulcan women to advance in Starfleet, and and Savick and Valeris were two of them. And Valeris was full Vulcan, by the way. There was also another reason to money. It's always money. Christy Alley, who played Savick in Star Trek II, was the highest paid actress at the time and Star Trek couldn't afford her, and her her reason for not returning to three um, was well documented. So they cast Kim Cattrall before Sex in the City, and she was excited to join the team. All right, so now we're going to get into some lists. Here are Star Trek characters that died in the premiere. Here's a few. The death of Captain Philippa Giorgio in the pilot episode of Discovery. Now, the thing is... The mirror universe, Philippa Giorgio, is very much alive and living in the prime universe. In the original series, Lieutenant Gary Mitchell and Dr. Elizabeth Daner met tragic fates in the premiere episode where no man has gone before. Here is a tragic case in Jennifer Sisko for Star Trek Deep Space Nine. More of the list at Screen Rant. Screen Rant has 16 Star Trek doctors from worst to first. First is Dr. Well, last, I should say, is Dr. Sarah April from Star Trek The Animated Series, voiced by Nichelle Nichols. That was the episode The Counterclock Incident, where the first captain of the Enterprise, Robert April, comes on board. And through an incident, him and his wife 
actually get younger while the crew gets younger to be children. That's a, that was used in Star Trek many times, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Yeah, the next generation did that. Dr. Philip Boyce is played by John Hoyt. He was only in the pilot, The Cage, and we see him again in the menagerie. To me, he was kind of the prototype of Dr. McCoy when he sensed that Captain Christopher Pike was having a hard time. He went to see him and he brought along some uh, cocktails for him. Dr. Mark Piper, we briefly saw in Star Trek, the original series, second pilot, where no man has gone before. He really wasn't much of a character and really didn't get to know him. He just kind of filled the role. And Dr. Ankh from Star Trek Picard. She serves on the USS Titan A in Star Trek Picard III. And, of course, for Captain Liam Shaw. She is very much by the book. And then she meets Dr. Beverly Crusher. And Crusher kind of does things now a little differently. She was able to kind of see how Crusher did things and actually incorporated some of it. And Dr. Tiana from Lower Decks. Uh, I love her. The Cassian CMO of the Cerritos is something of a blunt instrument, to say the least. She is boldly honest, curses a lot, and her mentee is Lieutenant Devana Tendi. Noel Wells voiced the character. And... Uh, <laughs> The romantic times he has with Lieutenant Jax, voiced by Fred Tatascor, uh, is left at the imagination, I'll say, but their holodeck adventures are kind of racy, to say the least. She gets the job done and really doesn't care what anybody thinks of her. More at Scream Rant. Game Rant has the best romances for Star Trek. James Kirk and Lenore Caridian. In this first season episode, The Conscience of the King, which is based on a line from Shakespeare, Kirk meets a traveling group of players, and Lenore is part of it, along with her father, Anton Caridian. They hit it off, like, right away. Very different from Kirk's other relationships is that I genuinely believed he cared about her. Of course, we find out at the end of the episode that Lenore is insane and killing witnesses to her father, who was really Kodos the Executioner. Barbara Anderson, who went on to fame in the series Ironside with Raymond Burr, played Lenore Caridian, and she played her well. You might have say she channeled a bit of Ophelia's mad scene at the end of the episode. There is no secret that Roddenberry was a huge fan of Shakespeare, and several episodes have names from Shakespeare. Like, for example, by any other name, season two with those nasty Kelvins. But a great episode, and she did a wonderful job. Her performance, I really like. I've never seen her do anything that fantastic as she did in that episode. It was a really good episode and one of my favorites of the uh, first season. Lieutenant Ilea and Will Decker from Star Trek The Motion Picture. Interesting. Uh, Gene Roddenberry, if he liked an idea, he brought it back. You could say they were the forerunners of Will Riker and also Deanna Troy. Their relationship was very, very similar in that way. Really was not developed fully in the motion picture, which is a shame. 
of course, at the end, they merged it to be create a different new life form. Spock and Droxine in the Cloudminders. This is interesting. I, I thought Spock seemed to be interested in her and, uh, and she in him. But uh, it never amounted to much because Spock is a Vulcan and that's the way things go. I got in trouble with Droxine because I was watching the show live in 1968 and my mom came home from going out and she saw Droxine's costume and she got pretty upset that she was barely wearing it. Hugh Colbert and Paul Stamets is a wonderful relationship. You know, it really was a fascinating arc when Hugh Colbert dies and then returns and is different and they have to kind of rekindle their relationship again. Really good acting by these two wonderful actors. You can see more at Gamerant. And you can subscribe to Sci-Fi Talk Plus. There's a link in the show notes for free lifetime access. That is free. And thanks for listening to a special Star Trek edition of Sci-Fi Talk Weekly. This is Tony Tolado. Take care. <laughs>